Hey, hi, hi there, you you wonderful genius. Um, hi, welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him. Hey, yeah, yeah. Hi, it's just me. That that's why that song was so distinctly a solo. Uh, yeah, it is. It is just Jake. Um, with with the appropriate Will and Grace esque hand gestures. Um, in this episode of this fine fine podcast, we both find ourselves at. Uh, I will be speaking with you about Monument by Red Stitch Actors Theatre, Profit at Theatre Works and Spring Awakening by Sevenfold Theatre Company. Uh, Yeah, thank you for being here, and I'll speak to you in just a second. Hey, um, yeah, yo, so yeah, sorry, uh, thank you for being here, I don't know why I <laughs> seemed like I wasn't ready, I literally just pressed the record button, um, and I was immediately flummoxed. I, yeah, <laughs> welcome back, um, yeah, I'll just, <laughs> thank you for being here, um, if, if my energy seems strange, it's, it's because of theatre, I guess, um, which is a pathetic sentence, and I'm, and I'm sorry for burdening your ears with it, it's just this thing that I've noticed recently, like, I'm at the beginning stages of you know, just to dive into to, to my verbal diary. Um, it, uh, yeah, I just, having spent like the last couple of weeks or so and now being sort of in the very, you know, the thick of the beginning phase of producing these two new plays that I've written and I'm like co-directing. I don't know. It's this strange things happening where, I don't know, because it's been so long since, because of study, it's been so long since I've been able to actually throw myself into into theatre productions. It's it's nice to be doing a thing that I love so much. And it's, again, sorry for the pathetic nature of the content of these sentences, but it's, um, and I hope you felt this, like this thing too, of having been away from something that you love so much, and then you get to come back to it. And then, I don't know, I just had this experience the other day of like realizing like, oh, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I don't know, my, my days feel like full of like a, like a, a, a type of happiness that I hadn't felt in quite some time. And it feels like my brain is back in the shape that it likes being in. And, and I don't know, and it's also odd too, because when you reach that, I don't know, and I'm speaking as if I've acquired any sort of wisdom, um, and that this type of feeling will not be fleeting like most, <laughs> um, but I'm in a, in a, I don't know, I just, I'm some type of happy and content at the moment, just by virtue of getting to be so immersed in even just the beginning stages of making theater. Um, I hope that you are currently in that state as well, um, or are heading towards it. Uh, but it's just, it's been, yeah, it's been nice to, to feel this way for the last little while and to get to hopefully get to stay in this feeling for a little bit too. Um, but it is the sort of thing as well, though, that it's like, <laughs> it makes you, and I'm sure there are other examples, but I'm too deep in this reality to think of parallels to it. But it's the sort of thing where it's like, I went to work the other day and I was like, oh God, do I not enjoy this as much as I thought I did? Because when you compare going to work with (laughs) making theatre, it becomes much more laborious and unenjoyable. But if you compare going to work with like, I don't know, being stressed and depressed and at home, it's like, oh, a chance to like, you know, be outside and (laughs) be in a vibrant environment with a bunch of randos. I don't know. It's that type of experience, um, but that's something. But that's all that being said, outside of <laughs> making these two friends shows that I hope you come to, please come to at least one of them. It'd, it'd be nice to see you there. But I promise this podcast is not just going to, you know, <laughs> slide into just being a commercial for my theatrical undertakings. Um, but um, all that is to say, much more importantly, I watched Red, White and Royal Blue. It's <laughs> like recent <laughs> um, gay movie that came out. It's got like the absurdly handsome man from Minx that I I quit watching because of the fake penises and the slow plot. I need 
to flag my bias in that if you're going to tell a story in any sort of way that is about, <laughs> um, like, two men falling in love and there's some sort of obstacle between the two of them, especially if it's, like, young people coming to terms with their sexuality, there is a very, very small chance that you are going to, in many ways, satisfy me with your storytelling because I just, I, it's just one of those things where it's, like, it feels somehow like your own personal emotional territory or something. Um, and I'm, yeah, drawn to these types of stories because I expect them to kind of, like, resonate with some of the wounds inside of me. And if those, like, if the right notes aren't hit and the right things aren't acknowledged and it doesn't, I don't know, in some way heal me or something, I suppose, then it just makes me very mad. And I'm aware that that's not necessarily a healthy way to walk into any piece of art, but that's why this film joins the long list of gay media that left me, uh, yeah, <laughs> inappropriately, angrily disappointed. Um, what were some high and low points? Thank you for tuning into my film review podcast. Um, I enjoyed Uma Thurman playing the president with a southern accent. I thought that was genius and one of her best performances. I liked how barely convincing the accent was. <laughs> I liked that she added to the very recent collection of scenes between accepting mothers and, like, <laughs> gay sons. Um, I guess gay like, parents on expensive couches with their sons is, is what I'm getting at because we also famously got it in Love, Simon. We got it in Call Me By Your Name. And I guess we can almost count Dear Evan Hansen. Like, I guess he, he wasn't a homosexual, but he was coming out as a fraud. I guess that wasn't what that scene was. It was that scene where he was like, fucking, what's his face? Julianne Moore was sitting with Ben, ben Platt? Ben Platt on that couch. And everyone got scared because it looked like they were about to kiss each other because Ben looked so old and Julianne Moore is just so dreamy. <laughs> um, what am I saying? I'm listing couch scenes. That's right. Um, I thought like an odd low point was when the two like beautiful gay politician sons went to a museum in secret and for some reason spent the entire time in the museum just looking at different sculptures of men's butts. <laughs> it's like, yes, that is our only interest. Well depicted. <laughs> it was good that it was like, I thought it was positive that there was like, anal sex depicted in even like some type of way <laughs> um because it's even like a discourse surrounding and saying discourse makes this sound too lofty there's, there's been anal discourse surrounding even like the recent <laughs> episodes of and just like that like the sex in the city revival series because they've recently yeah i don't know mario cantone and beautiful italian man had a couple of episodes where they were debating how their relationship would continue if they didn't become more anally versatile as a pair and yeah, and then butt sex happened. And then a lot of people had to reckon with their understanding of what it was. Like there are many adult women that because of like both of these, this, this, that series and this film have learned a lot of things about the, the, the whole butt situation. Um, yeah. And <laughs> that's a positive thing as well, I suppose. Um, yeah. Did I, and now the, 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 the big question, did red, white and royal blue make me cry? It definitely did. Do I remember why? I think it was just the two of them being really nice to each other. I think it was, yeah, it was none of the things, like it was none of the plot points that were supposed to feel substantial because it was all kind of nonsense. But it was just, yeah, them being really lovely to each other is the part that made me the most emotional, I suppose. There were bits. I will watch it again. Um, but I wouldn't recommend that you do, <laughs> necessarily. Uh, I don't know. That's my take on that, that nobody requested. Uh, yeah, anyway, enough about me rambling about nothing. I will, <laughs> I guess if I'm going to give my last week or so, um, a star rating, uh, let's go with 47, because that's how many stars were on that American flag that Apu was being taught how to be an American citizen, um, with by Homer Simpson. 
um, that is my star rating. Oh, and the absence of James. <laughs> Something that arguably I should have started this segment with. Um, he's just unwell. He's unwell again. And uh, yeah, I was yeah, trying to wait until he got better to do this recording. But then time kept marching on and he kept slipping further and further into death. And it's like, it's now or never, Trevor. Um, and I owe it to Trevor to get this episode out sooner rather than Christian Slater. And yeah. Okay, let's, let's start talking about some theatre. <laughs> So I went to Red Stitch Actors Theatre, uh, which I'm into. I enjoy being there. I enjoy going there. And I enjoy sitting there in the dark and watching art happen quack quack. Um, yeah, the show is called Monument and it's written by Emily Sheehan. Uh, yeah, so I went in. There were a bunch of school students there. I don't know why. It was nighttime. I guess they are allowed at night because, you know, me me rallying for that curfew just isn't getting any traction with the local council. But, uh, yeah, we went in and, yeah, school kids abounding. And I, I'm unclear as to why. I hope it's some sort of cute reason that they're all there. I don't know. But we were walking in. I was behind, like, a gaggle of them. And then a few of them saw the set before I did because that's how, you know, walking in a line works. The front people get places first. And they got very excited about how, like, pink of the set was. There were a bunch of Barbie references, and I rolled my eyes softly, mad still, about how Barbie had gone for me. (laughs) But yes, uh, the set itself was designed by Sophie Woodward, and yeah, it was beautiful. It was lovely. It was like this risen platform in the middle, and it was sort of like encircled by these peach-colored curtains. Which was, yeah, yeah, striking the first time and then like functional and lovely to, to keep getting to see as well throughout throughout the show. Uh, the show itself happened in real time, which I'm just always into as a as a limitation for the for the storytelling. Uh, the whole thing was just, yeah, took as much time as it took for your, like all the things to happen. The premise of the show itself um, is that we're about to have like the youngest woman prime minister ever. And we are in her hotel room before she goes off to go, like participate in whatever the ceremony is where they like, I don't know, they, they I don't know, like tap you on the noggin and they're like now it's you leader of the country um i assume it's sung and yeah so she's getting ready and like getting her makeup done and the two characters in the show are edith played by sarah sutherland so she is like the incumbent prime minister and then rosie is her is her makeup artist that we yeah um played by julia hannah uh, yeah, and uh, we spend the entire thing in this hotel room with the two of them while, yeah, Julia Hannah's Rosie does Edith's makeup and hair and helps her get dressed, uh, which is, which is <laughs> just as a premise, I'm super duper immediately into. I, um, I don't know, there is the, the basic thing of it like being like kind of like in some way, like very like soothing and sweet to watch a person get treated that way in the, in the way of like being beautified is kind of nice, um, and but even and but again even outside of that theatrically this undertaking is an impressive thing to be attempting because it, it's it's even just like rife with even the, like, imagining Emily Sheehan sitting down to write this show it's like how do you fill what was I'd say between like an hour an hour and a half of theatrical runtime with stuff that is that has all of the things that make a play classically engaging. Uh, how do you keep instigating, like, you know, new events? How is there a climax? How, do, how are there twists and turns? How do we learn things about these characters if we're limited by, you know, as Aristotle would excitedly say, like the, you know, like the, the constancy of space. Um, um, yeah, or whatever his terminology would be for that. But um, he and I haven't spoken in quite some time. Um, and, and sort of, yeah, I guess in that way, part of what was stimulating for me as a person watching this play, uh, was imagining the writing process. And I don't know how much you, sweet listener, relate to that experience, but yeah, I was, I was spending a lot of the show thinking about Emily developing this, this show and, and developing the text and the words and the, the way that the the story was going to like bubble forth and how it was going to end up on a stage. 
And, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time just kind of like, I don't know, injecting myself into my imagination of what her head was and her artistic process and what that was like. Just just because of how, yeah, like enticing and troublesome and the, 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 the size of that hurdle that you're assigning yourself when you when you want something to take place, again, in real time like this. Uh, which was which was a cool, even just like writerly experience. Like it felt almost a bit like a conversation about about praxis and about process, which I'm which I'm you know just always going to be into. I was I was really into how recognizable the two of these characters were. Like I've never met an incumbent prime minister woman before, but even and it happened also recently in Social Dance, um, in in that show where it's like these these upper class sort of roundly voweled women. Um, they are, yeah, they're certainly a thing that I've seen on stage my entire life, but just of late, it seems like, I don't know, it's just been hitting different, you know? <laughs> and I'm not super sure of why. I think, I don't know, maybe it's, I don't know, something to do with my, like, you know, increasing, that I spend too much time, like, talking about, my increasing rage surrounding, you know, my relationship with capitalism and anyone that is, that is, I don't know, making money. I just, <laughs> something in me that just gets really mad at them and I've really and we've talked about it on this podcast before but I struggle to in theater especially like I struggle to find a way like an inroad into empathizing with them in any sort of substantial way I'm not sure I was talking to a pal of mine the other day about he how he finds it really like entertaining and soothing to like to watch those videos where it's like celebrities showing you around their incredible mansions and it really like got me going in terms of like the rage that was inside of me. <laughs> and I was gentle with it, of course. Don't worry, I'm still out there nailing conversations. Uh, I, I'm not. I, uh, yeah, it, I, I can't watch that type of content because it just makes me think about things of just like, do you really need a third pool? Could you maybe, I don't know, give it to the poor or something? Like the money that you spent on your, you know, you know wall of aquariums? I don't know, I just... I don't know, it just feels like there's something in this day and age, and in this economy, you know, it feels unethical to be hoarding that much wealth. I don't know, but that's, that's not what this play's about, but that's just that's just part of what was underpinning some of my relationship with Edith, the character of Edith, played again, yeah, by Sarah Sutherland. Uh, it was it was magical to like watch a woman Sarah Sutherland already beginning the show as a beautiful woman, but then to sort of watch her get beautified in the in the you know the, the cosmetic sense by Julia Hannah's Rosie. It was just nice to get to witness it because me being like a man who you know doesn't really wear makeup and doesn't has not spent any time in one of those like well lit chairs in Maya getting his makeup done. It was nice to sort of like yeah get to be uh, like a fly on the wall of that process getting undertaken and getting to see the slow motion Princess Diaries evolution of a you know of a woman's face and hair and clothes <laughs> was was one facet that made this show unique and and engaging and and yeah to continue harping on about the the thrill of you know recognizability i yeah julia hannah's rosie a part of why i just sort of like immediately was drawn to her was the fact of her being i, I don't know if this is just like a <laughs> maybe it's foolish and vaguely solipsistic to think that this only exists for me because it doesn't um maybe i'm just gonna word it badly so it will feel like a thing that does not resonate with you at all but <laughs> i really appreciate this style of woman that exists and that feels minimizing the style of woman that i really appreciate the company of of like very like frank like mediterranean i don't know hard-edged women that are full of gusto especially when they're in the, the like mid-20s you know there's something <laughs> that i just really love about being around these these i don't know these like passionate enthusiastic oftentimes they tend to be greek women <laughs> um 
I feel like I sound like a like a I don't know like a like a like a stupid forty year old man when I say these sentences. But there was there was something where I felt like I knew. I I feel like I'd met her family. I felt like I knew what her like. I don't know what her perfume smelled like. It for some reason felt like there was something in the ponytail and the demeanor and the way that she spoke that made it feel like I was like spending some time with like a number of friends of mine. Um, and again, I don't know if this is a thing that will hit anyone else, but it's it's a thing that I felt the need to say. <laughs> uh, the show dealt a bit with class, a bit like a bit with status, a bit with just the idea of people treating people as less than people. Um, which is which is a, a theme that I'm you know always into and always talking about if if you know if not only just loudly in my own head uh, and and I'd say I I think <laughs> there are a bunch of things that happened in the show that were like real moments of like hmm okie dokie yeah that's a cool thing to say but I suppose the thing that if we're gonna go for like immediately to the thing that like leapt out as the thing that I guess that like slapped me the hardest in terms of a moment that made me feel the most it was like towards the end. We've come to learn a bunch of things about the way that these women are experiencing their own separate struggles and they've come to share a lot of secrets with each other, as is apparently a thing that people are prone to do while in a makeup chair. There's there's a lot of like open talking um, with the understanding that there'll be some level of confidentiality to it. But yeah, after after learning a bunch about these women and the two of them reaching a point of knowing a substantial amount about each other, at least as far as they know, <laughs> um, there's there's just a moment where the, the younger of the two, um, the makeup artist Rosie, is sitting with Edith and uh, she's just feeling a bit crappy and panicked and kind of garbage about the the you know the consequences of her recent life choices and that the cards she's been dealt in terms of her capacity to uh, you know have any willpower or <laughs> uh, handle her life in, in a way that feels you know responsible and it was just nice to have Edith sort of sit beside this woman that she's come to know over the last hour or so and just reassure her that things were going to be okay <laughs> and I and for I don't know because that sort of thing just kind of like always hits me for a bunch of reasons um, and it's always just really nice to hear. I feel like, I feel like I almost hear it and this sounds sad, but it shouldn't feel, I, I only hear it on stage and in films and television, I think of like older people telling younger people that they're going to be fine. Um, in a one-on-one -on -one way, not just like, I don't know, Amy Schumer going to a you know, college address and being like, you're all going to do well. But I, I, there's just something, and it, it's, it's part of the reason that I'm embarrassed by how often I think about that scene in Glee, where Adina Menzel is talking to Leah Michelle, and she's like, Rachel, which is of course Leah Michelle's character, Adina Menzel is like, Rachel, part of being an adult is forgive, is, <laughs> let me butcher this, Leah Michelle, part of becoming an adult is forgiving yourself for the mistakes you made when you were a child. And I think about that sentence a lot. I think about that scene a lot. And I try <laughs> my best to, I don't know, internalize that lesson that I, that I guess I agree with, but um, it just won't take. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a philosophy that my brain spits out like, like a watermelon seed, which you can just swallow. So weak analogy, perhaps. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, and the character of Edith, of course, is a political figure. Um, I suppose the show itself didn't really make me interrogate anything in terms of the world of politics. I suppose it's certainly, of course, a, a political play, just in the way of, like, I forget who said it, but it's like all theatre is political because it's about people wanting things and whether or not they can get them. Um, so, yeah, of course it's a political play. Did it add anything to my feelings or change any of my feelings about the world of politics? No, I think it just probably added to the reasons that I find 
the the you know the the practice of being a politician to be a pretty laughable one just in terms of it seems like it's constructed so much of artifice and performance um, which honestly makes it a much more like approachable career choice <laughs> not one that I'm drawn to for those reasons but um uh, yeah I don't know that that that's yeah they're the ideas that rubbed up rubbed against for me uh, in terms of it being a show about politics. Uh, it, yeah, it did not make me take the plight of them more seriously. I can assure you of that. Um, but yeah, and it certainly didn't, like, it didn't make me <laughs> less fervent in my belief that there should be a woman prime minister for longer than a couple of months. Uh, maybe, maybe successively forever. Um, <laughs> especially if one of them is Uma Thurman with a Southern accent. I just think she'd make good choices for the country. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that, so that's Monument by Emily Sheehan, directed by Ella Caldwell. So I went to Theatre Works with beautiful British Johnny, and we went there to see Prophet by Jodie Gallagher. Prophet spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T, not Prophet as in like dollar sign, dollar sign. You're following? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we got there. We ran into Elizabeth Brennan, which, like, such a blessing already, of course, and what a great omen. That omen then immediately followed by one of the more terrifying things I've ever heard. When I went to the, the box office and spoke to wonderful Belle, my pal Belle, who was working at the box office, she was like, oh, the show is done in parade, um, which is different to immersive um, in ways that I've only ever defined to myself. So correct me if I'm wrong, but immersive is, like, you sort of, like, dick around and kind of, like, do whatever you want and, like, pick things up. And, like, um, yeah, that that it is much more, like, it's engagement, whereas parade is more, like, don't get in the way. We're going to be, like, you know, fucking around a bunch and you are welcome to walk around. But, but yeah, don't, don't intrude upon the action. Uh, it's <laughs> And the instruction to move around if you want is horrifying to me because as we've established thoroughly my brain doesn't work so the idea of like you have the option to sit in darkness and maybe miss a quack quack miss a bunch of the show due to your social insecurities um or you can stand up and make a spectacle of yourself is truly a jake nightmare (laughs) so you know factor that in we go inside. Full disclosure, Sam Diamond, a beloved chum of mine, did the design for the show. Uh, and unsurprisingly, it was stunning in terms of the way the show looked. It was sort of like, it, it felt like it was set in this broken, recently almost maybe exploded city where everything is like, there is dust still settling. There are there are pieces of debris sort of like hung above our heads. Uh, everyone's sort of around the place standing up or sitting on like, some of them are just chairs, of course, but there's like, like wooden crates and benches and pallets and everything. There's a bit like a big scaffolding. Um, and that's, that's the environment that we're in. And yeah, and it was a preview. So I want to say it was a preview as well. So it's potentially changed a bunch since then, maybe overnight. So they, again, that's, that's also an element of this experience as well. And part of also what made it very exciting to be the, like, I don't know, to the, the idea that maybe we're the first real life audience to get to experience what this work was before it became whatever it became was, was a real blessing. And that was really exciting. Uh, the, the plot itself. Oh, it's, oh, oh, you best believe this is one of those classic plots that Jake is going to get lost during. So I did my best <laughs> to, to pay attention. The moment that the text started coming out and I noticed that it was this this type of like poetic you know long form like breathy prose the moment that I I realized that that's what was happening was like oh Jake you failed at this before (laughs) you you lock your ears on these people and I did what I could okay because it was yeah it was a lot of like yeah long poetic rivers of statement and and monologue and 
even the conversations felt a bit like like dueling monologues almost, you know? Like it was a lot of, like there, there were dynamic scenes that were, like I'd say, and they were they happened largely towards the end of the show. Uh, the more sort of like classically recognizably dramatic scenes and those sorts of sequences where a lot of plot got moved forward and a lot of character motivation got revealed. Up until maybe like the last 15 minutes, it was a lot of like world construction and description and... And, yeah, filling us up with kind of, like, the, the, the current state of emotional matters for the citizens of this world that we were immersed in. Um, I gotta say that Scott Middleton's in the show, and I continue to be just madly obsessed with him. It was such a welcome thing to to see him. I didn't know he was in the show, and then I rocked up, and he was standing at the top of this scaffolding, and I locked his eyes, and I was like, oh, <laughs> this show's already going incredibly. Because, yeah, as, as has been stated numerous times on this podcast, I think he's remarkable. So... Great to see him. And then, yeah, and then the show began. And so Johnny and I are sitting sort of fearfully alongside Elizabeth. <laughs> As the show began, she mustered up more courage than I and did endeavor to do some waltzing about. During during the show's run, I, I Johnny and I did not move. Even when there were, like, obstructions that we, we were, like, you know, it wasn't a shortcoming of the theater makers because we were told we could move around. If we couldn't see, we should have moved. If we had that type of courage and agency, we wouldn't have missed a thing. And yet... <laughs> <laughs> we sat. <laughs> um, which wasn't all bad. There was a moment where... <laughs> all bad, if it was, like, largely, like, you know, tragic. No, there was, like, one notable moment. There was, like, a couple of scenes between two of, like, the... the our husband and wife that we kept missing a lot of the visuals of. But, you know, the dialogue was enough. And... But there was, like, a, a stunning moment where we were sitting right behind where Gabriel Partington, one of the... One of the... Yeah, a really remarkable performer, uh, was, was seated... He did a lot of, like... I'm all over the place. Listen to me. <laughs> Gabriel Partington, who I've definitely seen before, and the, the amount... I, I did a little research into trying to find out where I knew his face from. Couldn't find it. But in order for you to like envision him, he's just very charismatic. And the best way that I can get you to understand what he looks like is, like, if you imagine, like, <laughs> if Jesus and Jake Gyllenhaal had a child... That, that would be this man um, who's, yeah, who's a charisma and sage presence I was just like, really excited by. I feel like I've seen him in a Shakespeare or something. Um, he has that type of diction that would lend itself well to being, you know, Macbeth in a park. Uh, yeah, but I, we was, Johnny and I were seated right behind where he was having this morose experience of thought. And a scene was taking place directly opposite Johnny and I. So all that we could kind of see was really just like the close-up silhouette of Gabriel while we were listening to the dialogue of this other scene happening. And for some reason, that felt really lovely. Like it almost felt, to speak of another Scott Middleton vehicle, it felt a bit like Traps, where it was like we were able to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mentally participate in stuff that was going on elsewhere while paying very close attention to something that wasn't, you know, necessarily inherently tied to what we were going through. And it's like, I don't know, it's, there's something in that unique, uh, almost somehow it feels almost like a collage of being able to be like, there's a thing happening over there, but I'm going to focus on this thing. And that's in, something that's, you know, inbuilt into the experience of like, I don't have to look where the lights are shining. I can look at Gabriel looking sad. He spent a lot of time walking around the space, like, you know, carrying a journal melancholically. It's like, that was also very engaging, you know? Um, yeah, Scott spent a bunch of time listening to people in a way that I found very dynamic and captivating. So it was nice to be in this, this theatrical space where no one ever really left until the very, very end. And you could do what you want with your with your eyeballs. Um, it's it's nice because it, it, I don't know when that is the rule. I tend to find that it's kind of your fault if you're bored, you know. So 
show. So, you know, the show already had that dynamic going for it as well. In terms of the plot, here is what I grasped. I tried not to, <laughs> as James and I have sort of established as a soft rule for what this podcast is, I did not do any additional research into working out the plot was because I just wanted to <laughs> because, I don't know, that's what theatre is, he said unconvincingly. Uh, so my understanding is that this soldier goes away to war. This other person also goes away to war. Um, and <laughs> they return and they have this changed mind about how the war functions in the way that it engages with the politics of the time. And because of one one sort of like war crime that occurs um, carried out by the government of the city in which we spend our time throughout the show, this soldier has turned against his government and is encouraging other people to do the same. He becomes the prophet. He has a follower who loses a lot of his happiness and livelihood and joy from his life because of his commitment to this new, I don't know, this, this, this new antisocial mindset that he's developed and has become kind of radicalized by the rage of this somewhat presumably, I don't know, shell-shock-ravaged soldier that's returned from the battlefield. <laughs> and then then on top of that as well. So it's like, that's that's kind of like the background of things. That's That, I suppose, is the, the instigating event is the radicalization of first this prophet and then his follower, played by Scott and Gabriel, respectively. And then on top of that, too, we have Helen Hopkins, who this whole cast was so like, charismatic and peculiar which, again, is just a quality that I just really enjoy celebrating and seeing um, in equal measure almost. Uh, but yeah, Helen Hopkins plays who I originally thought was a television presenter, but then ended up being some sort of like high profile political figure as well. But had a lot of chances to just sort of like saunter around in like a power suit and say some kind of like horrifying political things to a number of people and had like a like a like a wealthy causticness that was, you know, kind of at odds with everything else that was going on in the way of like everyone else felt like they were almost like war-torn rent. Is that telling of how <laughs> how limited my scope of experiencing war-torn countries must be if I have to go to rent to explain <laughs> what it's like to be a bit dirty and poor and sad? Probably, Jake. It probably goddamn is. It's like if Oliver Twist happened during, you know, a crusade. <laughs> I might be stupid. Um, but yes, for that reason and so many others, I, Helen was such like a welcome ingredient in this like broth that we were all stewing inside of. Do you stew in a broth or is that oxymoronic? I don't know. I'm not a chef. It was really enjoyable to watch Mia Landgren, uh, sort of like, yeah, the graceful Mia Landgren, <laughs> um, try, try to, try to win back over her husband to, to, I don't know, participating in the reality that she herself belongs to with him having, you know, returned from, from war in the, in the way that he does return. And it's, yeah, her performance, yeah. Echoed along with, you know, that, that story that's been told so many times of, of loved ones, you know, receiving their, you know, their loved ones back from situations like war or war specifically. Um, it was nice to watch her portrayal of that type of desperation. Uh, I've certainly got to say that a, like a, one of the, you know, most remarkable elements of this production and something that was integral to its effectiveness was J. David Fransky's composition and sound design, as well as Bronwyn Pringle's lighting design, uh, just in the way that they, you know, they, along with Sam's wonderful design of the, of the set that we were inside of, uh, yeah, created the atmosphere that 
that, that that took us to where the story was taking place. It was like it just the moments that I got to spend watching these, yeah, these, these lights hit these actors and looking at like the light fog that hung in the air throughout the entire show. Yeah, it's just nice when a show has such a palpable atmosphere and being immersed in it in this parade style of performance. Uh, yeah, yeah, for that to be as magical as it felt uh, was 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 in in yeah because of the work of these three people. Uh, the show itself definitely gestured towards this experience that maybe happened during the season, I don't know. Again, I was at a preview, so I don't know what the show blossomed into being in terms of the audience experience specifically. But it was, I was talking to like, I've made a new pal lately. It's, it's a, a gentleman that I'm currently collaborating with. And he was asking for like recommendations on shows to see. And he, I was like, okay, well, what sort of like shows do you like to see? And what like part of what he was like, he, I don't know, he's, <laughs> um, he's from Perth. And a thing that he said that he would love to experience is the idea of being really, really like close inside of a of a performance like something he said he wanted to feel like a sardine while while watching a show and i brought up profit just in the way of like almost giving an example of something that kind of yeah again sort of gestures in the direction of like a way to maybe to maybe experience a performance and again i don't know if this is a thing that profit was attempting to accomplish or did during the season but it's a show that you could absolutely experience in the way of like even in the gigantic theater workspace on ackland street you could absolutely stage this work or another one in a, in a room full of just packed full of people and if people are happy to opt into that type of you know <laughs> crowdy claustrophobia i think something really incredible that could be accomplished if if you're i don't know in this this swarm this very like deliberately constructed crowd of people where no one really gets to be comfortable but you get this experience of people emerging from this crowd to, to tell, tell this story like i i don't know i feel like it could be a really fun way to maybe tell something biblical or or something like prophet something you know, <laughs> that's about people making proclamations and people making, you know, trying to instigate change or try to like start a rally. Like the idea of like hearing a story get told like that uh, is very like evocative and potentially, I, I, you know, something very like moving and, and engaging in a, in a way that, I don't know in a way that that style could could really, really nail. So I don't know if, if if anyone out there wants to give me a grant or if anyone wants to just stage that, I'll definitely come. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's a, there's a fun, I don't know, something really fun could exist in that space and that style, I think. I think the only thing that I've experienced, I don't know, the example that is springing to my mind is, it was, it was, it was a show that I saw by myself when I think I was like 19 years old and it was called, it, was, it wasn't shopping and fucking, but it was something that had fucking in the title. And we went in and I was like, I was very new to like seeing theater at all, like especially independent theater. And I went to this place that I think was in Fitzroy, but I think maybe it was just a suburb that I can like, considered to be Fitzroy-esque when I was that age. And yeah, walked up this staircase, went into this room and it was just a bunch of people sitting around to watch some theater. And all it was was like, it was just like this big empty room at the top of a bar somewhere. And we were all just sitting around and then like one by one, an actor would stand up and just sort of like have this wonderful monologue and then just like return to this throng of couch seated people in this room of people just there to hear stories. But it was like, you know, it was a play constructed of these monologues and they all like, you know, bounced off each other narratively. And it was just, it was the first time that I'd experienced something that at that point in my life felt very experimental and very boundary pushing. And like, oh my God, you can tell a story like this. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just felt like bringing that up. Um, I don't know. Xavier O'Shaughnessy was in it, um, which probably means nothing to you, but I think he's a remarkable man and a very good performer. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's talk about something else. So I went to the Bluestone Church art space, a space with which I have a like, long beloved history. Uh, and yeah, I went there with wonderful New Zealand man. 
we were there because uh, Sevenfold Theatre Company, uh, yeah, <laughs> was staging Spring Awakening, the Frank Vedekind play that the, you know, Leah Michelle Jonathan Groff musical was based on. <laughs> Ever heard of it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, and Sevenfold Theatre Company, you recognise their name if you've been listening for a little while to this podcast. They were the ones who did that recent musical, that recent new musical, Blue to the Horizon, that James went to. And then also um, <laughs> that, that public transport musical that I was super into. Um, that I, I don't know. That was, that was a really wonderful time. I, I think about that final dance sequence uh, quite often. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we went to see Spring Awakening. Me, a New Zealand man, walked into where to, to where all the seats are. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bluestone Church, but it's a church that they've hollowed out and now it's a performance space because, yeah, the Maribyrnong City Council is impressively committed to, you know, helping the performing arts and the arts generally. It's a really wonderful council in that way. I don't know if they are also secretly, I don't know, selling toes. I'm not sure. But in terms of their commitment to the arts, I've always found it to be you know, quite quite impressive and inspiring the way that they do it. Uh, yeah, so we went to find our seats. Uh, we couldn't find any. The wonderful Josh Strawn saw our struggle and then directed us on where to go. It was it was a moment that could have been much more humiliating than it ended up being, which was good. We were in the front row. Um, there was a man to my left and then the wall. So that's just giving you a nice picture of of where we were sitting. As we sat there waiting for the show to begin, the entire cast, as far as I... At least the like vast majority of the cast was on stage... Um, getting ready for a day at school is how it read. Uh, all of them kind of like donning their like shirts and or dresses and, you know, funky day hats <laughs> is what it was. Because it, of course, yeah, well, not of course, they've, they've chosen to set it in what feels like a version of the, you know, the, <laughs> the 1800s German village where, you know, Spring Awakening, in my mind, kind of like, like exists in a... <laughs> In, I don't know, almost in like this this island of pretend history in terms of <laughs> where this where this village is actually located. Um, you know, the history of this play is well documented and it, <laughs> when it came out, it, you know, enraged and outraged so many people. Um, but yeah, some, somehow, I don't know, with all the adaptations that at least I've personally <laughs> been, been, you know, made privy to, it's like at this point, this Spring Awakening town, it's almost more of a state of mind than it is <laughs> it is a place that you could go to on a plane and then a horse. Um, I don't know. In Zachary Dixon's director's notes, um, they bring up the fact of how much they've wanted to stage this tragedy, <laughs> which I just think is just outside of anything. That's just exciting to me. Like, I, <laughs> when people have these works that they're drawn to for whatever reason, and the, then they, like, become a theatre maker, depending on when they came across this work that resonated with them so hard. Um, but it's just really exciting when a person gets a chance to stage a thing that they've for so long been thinking about staging. I just... Maybe that's a simple thing to say, but it's just great to... I don't know, there's so much stuff going on. There's a thing going where it's like, you've become an, like a person with enough resources to stage a dream you've had to the extent that you hoped to realize it um which i just think is like a, a beautiful and a cool career moment and an exciting artistic moment as well not just because you get to like make a fantasy come true and then i don't know and then like you know interrogate the pieces afterwards um but also because then it means you get to you know find something new after it uh is i don't know for those reasons reading those director's notes was was exciting to me uh Partly because, yep, yeah, again, partly because you get to see a thing that a person's been thinking about for a really long time. And it's almost like, it's almost similar to when you're at a, like a, I don't know, like at a house party and you give someone a chance to, you know, rant about one of their passions 
you know, and you, and you get to see all these like fully formed large ideas and you get to, you get to, <laughs> yeah, hear about why it is that they are so fixated on like, I don't know, the history of a particular shade of blue or something. It's like, and they, they get a chance to like uninterruptedly just express to you why they find that shade so fascinating. I don't know. So for, yeah, anytime that is the genesis of a production, uh, yeah, I just get super jazzed about it. <laughs> um, Zachary also goes on to say that what seems like he's saying is that the complex theme, he literally says, the complex themes of sexuality, authority, religion, gender, and shame demand a lot from the creatives. Um, that being yet the content of the work. Um, which I think is what they are saying, I think, is that that, that that's part as well as uh, like what attracted the company and Zachary to, to staging this work as well. And anyone that's attracted to a text because it is very demanding, um, I think is, yeah, I don't know, it's a cool, exciting starting point and a very, I don't know, it's an easy, easy methodology and set of, you know, I don't know, theatrical ethics to, to respect. Um, leaping abruptly to the full disclosure portion, I just need to point out that Gemma Caruana is in the show. She, of course, being like a wonderful chum of mine, a partner of Connor Dariol. And yeah, just, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure you remember that she recently performed Underwire, her cabaret that, that went wonderfully well. And then she's doing a show in the upcoming Fringe Festival called Gala Gala. So get on that if you want to. Um, but yeah, anyway, that all aside. <laughs> so they, <laughs> these characters are all getting dressed. That occurs for a while and then the show begins. Uh, we are, yeah, immediately made aware that they have this projection going on the entire show. It kind of, like, comes on intermittently. It's projected up on, like, the back. I don't know how familiar you, how familiar you are with this church in Footscray. But there's a big, uh, a big, big old like, wall behind the performers. And then, because we in seats are on the floor flatly, and they are on a risen platform in front of us that is in a cross shape um, in front of a big churchy wall behind them. And at the top of that wall is projected a bunch of stuff intermittently throughout the show. After the kids are all done getting dressed for school, they get blacked out, and then this projection gives us an acknowledgement of country and gives us, like, a, a very, like, thorough <laughs> list of content warnings, which... Is a very compassionate move, I suppose. Yeah, very detailed. In addition to that, it, it, even like the, the social media marketing of the show was very vigilant in terms of making sure that everyone that was interested in coming to the show would be made quite diligently aware of the things that they may find confronting about the work. Uh, which, which again, yeah, is, is, is an act of compassion and diligence on, on the part of the theatre company. Uh, just so you don't get lost in your uncertainty about it, uh, throughout the show they use the screen and the projections on the screen as a way of showing images that tie to narrative moments in a way that maybe just like increases the volume on some of the more potent elements of the scene that we've just gone through. Um, or they offer forth a suggestion of maybe like the the, the ramifications of the, 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 the mindset of of the parents that leave these children in the dark and permit these children quack quack to suffer at, at the hands of their negligent, like hyper-religious, oddly ethical style of parenting. Uh, for example, there's like footage of the Columbine shooting and presumably the <laughs> suggestion is that there is something tying these two worlds together, that of this, <laughs> again, somewhat fictional-feeling German village and uh, the modern-day US and the way that they are teaching their young, treating their young, and the way that they grow up to be, you know, mass shooters. <laughs> 
Uh, and sorry, let me be clear. I'm not giggling at the prospect of, of school shootings. <laughs> um, as we have before, I'm just going to run you quickly through like the plot of Spring Awakening. Okay, so strap in, skip ahead if you can't stand hearing about Vendler and the gang. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's a bunch of teenagers. There are boys and there are girls. They are educated separately for whatever reason. Again, they live in pretend Germany. <laughs> Vendler, as are all the girls seemingly, has a crush on... <laughs> Handsome Melchior, who is a boy at the school who, you know, is smart and reads books and doesn't just internalize all the lessons that he's taught. He questions things and defends the foolish and curious. Admittedly, yes, those are sexy qualities. So Melchior and Vendela spend some time under a tree. They talk about philosophy and whatnot and begin to like each other. Vendela also learns that one of her gal pals at school is being physically like abused by her father. And while also being convincingly sympathetic about the situation, she also begins to interrogate her own feelings surrounding that maybe she's enticed by the notion of like, I don't know, experiencing pain. She, yeah, approaches Melchior and is like, I would like to feel pain. He hits her with a stick a bunch of times. He's confronted by how much he potentially like I don't know enjoyed the primal experience of inflicting that pain upon her and she is left eventually having to be the one that consoles him in of course a moment that ripples through time and is another <laughs> you know representation of a you know a hurt woman having to make a man feel better about what he did to her <laughs> um here is a trigger warning for sexual assault swiftly after the reconciliation between Melchior and Vendela Melchior sexually assaults Vendela she falls pregnant from this assault Vendela's mother finds out about about the pregnancy, sends Vendela away to get an abortion, the abortion kills Vendela, and that's the end of Vendela. Meanwhile, Moritz, Melchior's sexually ignorant doofus of a pal, who's anxious about his sexual ineptitude as well as his scholastic failings, is trying to learn about vaginas, and trying not to fail fucking Latin, and then, I don't know, struggles with both of them. He almost scrapes through getting to the next year of his schooling because there isn't enough room for all of them because school in this German town is a lot like Survivor. He doesn't make it through to the next year of his schooling and then in order to avoid shaming his parents with his stupidity, he shoots himself in the head. Uh, and then, what else is going on? Ilsa has sort of left the village and lives with a bunch of artists and she is kind of meant to be, she exists as this character that's kind of this alluring prospect of like, you could live like this instead, you dinguses. <laughs> Why don't you just come and be painted by a bunch of like men that live in the forest? Um, is that the bulk of it? And then of course, there's also like the, the, the politics of how the school functions and what the, what the teachers actually want of these students and for these students. And yeah, that's Spring Awakening. I don't know if there are any other plot points that are, you know, gaping ones that are left out. There's a gay subplot. Um, yeah, just like two guys are into each other and the insinuation seems to be textually that they will not end up together, but when they get older, they'll look back on this time and be like, oh, that was nice when I was allowed to briefly have a secret boyfriend. Uh, that's, yeah, I think that's Spring Awakening. Um, and yeah, and now to talk specifically about this production, I just need to launch in. My heart wants my heart wants me to launch in by just immediately having to talk about <laughs> Jacinta Squires because it was just so wonderful to get to see her just like, her, like I don't know, her, her, her chilly intensity. I just, yeah, the, the, I saw her in Broken Record a little while ago uh, and it was just great to see her on stage again. I, I really missed her, yeah, frosty poise and, and watching her, yeah, play Frau Berkman, the the woman kind of <laughs> responsible in some ways for the death of her daughter. Is that a controversial thing to call her? Uh, but yeah, and it was all, it was cool too to see her have such a, a handle on comedy as well. Um, it was impressive. 
It was wonderful as ever to get to see Jonathan Schilling again, who we last spoke about when he was in that production of Disco Pigs, which was that two-hander that we talked about maybe almost a year ago, maybe, uh, where it was, yeah, the two-hander at Meat Market, uh, uh, where they had those really thick accents that I couldn't totally understand my way through but <laughs> but I was very impressed by the accents and the intensity of those performances but we're talking about Spring Awakening and yeah again it was wonderful to see, to see Jonathan Schilling in this show playing Hans Rilo because he's always seemingly very very willing to make very like intense surprising decisions and choices and commit to things in a way that um I don't know is is fun to watch people play against um and yeah it, it, and it sounds as if I'm trying to say something hurtful while <laughs> I don't know coating it in things that sound like compliments but no it's truly dynamic and and wondrous to get to see someone like him who is willing to make peculiar theatrical decisions um because they're the more exciting decisions <laughs> um in a moment of Zachary Dixon's costume design and Samantha Bradley's performance melding in a really memorable, striking way. Um, yeah, Samantha Bradley plays the vampire pope. Let me explain. <laughs> She's Samantha plays a character that it's been a while, a while since I read the original Spring Awakening text, but she hangs in this work as what feels like a representation of, I don't know, the, the, the shame of these children or the condemnation from this town's perception of god um but but yeah she's she's in this like a stunning big voluminous lacy black gown and i think just in the second half she had this <laughs> big black pope looking hat <laughs> um and yeah she just like sort of wafted around and now and then had songs to sing and now and then had some like dark things to quack quack say and I just wanted to bring it up because it was like it was a, like, it was a goofy, elegant flourish that that mixed well with the presence of uh, the the <laughs> the reprise of Lady Gaga's Venus song um, from, of course, her best album, Art Pop. Yeah, that's right. It got represented <laughs> in a Vatican play. <laughs> Don't we all feel validated? Um, I really enjoyed watching Jackson Cross wrestle with, or him playing Melchior, wrestle with the... <laughs> I suppose it must be an age-old issue of trying to play a boy when one of his integral characteristics is being wise beyond his years, while not just seeming like a man failing to like <laughs> accurately betray a young boy. You know? Like, how do you play a boy who in many ways is very manly in his philosophy, while not just reading as... A man who seems too old to be seducing a girl in the woods. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm just going to take us back to the director's notes for a second, where where Zachary Dixon, the director, says um, that masculine and feminine figures are built into a system and provided roles. How do those who live between find their place in this community? What role does gender play in this world? Um, and yeah, and which of course I think yeah rubs up interestingly against the decision to cast Joanna Halliday as Moritz and also to cast Kyle Huthbert as Ernest, but also as Fanny Gabor. Uh, and yeah, it's just it was it, those choices were stimulating in the way of like giving yeah giving giving the role of Moritz to Joanna Halliday and Moritz being as as I <laughs> very quickly described the idea of Moritz being like a a flailing young man trying to trying to get a grip on everything that he's being forced to 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 grapple with during his puberty his experience of puberty um to hand that role to a woman is is interesting in the way of like it just begs the question of like 
when you... And it's the same thing as, like, watching... So, watching Kyle play Fanny Gabor opposite Jimmy Caruana's Air Gabor, um, it's interesting in the way of, like, it, it, it requires you to, like, while watching the show, have gender roles at the forefront of one's mind because... Uh, just in the way of like it, it, it just does do that like it, like because these characters are dealing with issues that are inherently gendered in the way as Zachary points out in the notes uh, that are gendered in the way of like Kyle is playing like they're playing a mother and and we're watching this mother defend her son and at the same time we're watching Joanna play this young boy who's trying to work out how to be a man and. <laughs> I don't know. It makes you think about, and in a way that I presume was uh, deliberate because this show was made by intelligent people, um, it tosses you out a little bit of the of the of the world of the play intellectually, because it leaves you then having to deal with a lot of what is getting done intellectually, as opposed to it being an emotional experience, uh, which which of course is the thing that one is welcome to play with when dealing with a text this old and this familiar to so many people, like. Why not fuck around with it? You know, like it's been done, <laughs> I don't know, purely many a time before. Uh, and yeah, it was just a thing that I wanted to, to bring up because I think it's a relatively contemporary conversation um, in 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 many ways. I guess not the instance of like, whether you want to call it gender blind casting or where you want to call it, if you want to call it gender conscious casting, um, whatever you want to like refer to it as being, um, there is... There is something in the choice. And this has been like a, a few of the conversations I've had about the work since seeing it. It's like, I suppose in the, in I guess, I, I hate saying the word society, in the society that we're creating art in currently, I, you can't, I guess, in, in any sort of effective way, cast something in a gender blind way, I would say. Like this is a contention and a hypothesis. You can't stage a show in a, in a gender blind way to a modern audience in the theater if your definition of gender blindness is that anyone can have the role if they are a good enough actor. Um, the discourse and prevalent values, I would say, of theatre makers uh, in, let's say, in this city um, suggest that that you can't cast in that fashion. Um, because, yeah, because more than ever, it is part of the fabric of the show's politics, um, which which is fascinating. Like, it, it's, it adds, a, like, a texture to these choices. Um, and a significance to these choices that that makes it all the more exciting to discuss the work and to make work. And again, uh, yeah, and not saying it as a negative thing, but it's, I don't know. So there's that layer of things happening. And then on top of that as well, there's kind of like the industrial thing of like taking a role from a man and giving it to a woman um, and vice versa. It's interesting the way that these sorts of ideas rub up against things, industrially speaking, you know, um, to give to give the role of a passionate defensive mother to a man um, and to give one of a floundering young boy to a woman, like those sorts of decisions, you know, I don't know, pose kind of like simultaneously industrial and artistic emotional questions of like, can you in a world where there are fewer great roles for women than for men ever ethically give a woman's role to a man? And again, like emotionally, theatrically, can you give a role that is potentially intended to represent the struggle of young masculinity to a woman if it means to potentially depriving some of the more empathically limited men in the audience the capacity to connect with somebody. I don't know, it's interesting to be at this this point of, I don't know, gender in media. Uh, and I don't know, and it's, it, and it's cool for that reason that this show is, as consciously as they are doing so, engaging with, with that discourse. 
And yeah, and in a work that is explicitly intended to ask the question of what, like, what role does gender play in this world? Um, yeah, whether or not that is speaking, because I'm, yeah, of course, reading from the director's notes again, whether or not that speaks directly to the world, but like, portrayed in the play or the world in which the play is taking place. Because um, it see, I don't know, it's, it seems as if gender is not necessarily present in the world of the play. Like, it, it itself never seems to be something that gets addressed. Um, in the way that it seems to be that, it, that sex is what does, like, divides these children as opposed to their gender identities, um, I'd say arguably is the way to read this production and this play. I don't know, maybe all I'm po- like pointing out is the very obvious fact of this play engaging with conversations surrounding gender in the arts uh, just by virtue of existing, <laughs> you know? You know, even if they cast it in a traditional way, um, it would, it would yeah, have to contend with the assertions of the day, um, as we all do and shall forever. <laughs> uh, I don't know, and I don't I don't know. I'm just, I guess what I'm also saying, and this is not a statement more so than I guess a, a question that I think about sometimes, especially when experiencing works like this that engage with gender in this very active way. And I don't know, like Moritz is not Hamlet. You know, Moritz, <laughs> Moritz is absolutely not Hamlet. He could be the fool's Hamlet, I guess. But he, um, but I, I guess I come back to this question sometimes of like, is there anything lost in the idea of Hamlet, a confused young man dealing with grief and, and I don't know, questions of the desirability of revenge and indifference to his love for a doting woman. Um, is there anything lost or gained by the theoretical idea of a woman playing that character? And yeah, and I don't say it with any sort of like <laughs> secret misogynistic or like transphobic agenda. It's just a question like, of course, people exist in so many different ways, on so many different levels, on so many different spectrums, as men, as women, as as intersex people, as, as so many other things, as, you know, AFAB, AMAB, there's a whole gender spectrum, like all of those things. But I... Yeah, I think I think what's interesting when you start playing with those types of ingredients, um, yeah, you just I don't know have those sorts of like thought experiments, um, and in that way, I don't know, it's the, the, something that is able to happen. Therefore, is you get productions like this that play with those types of depictions, and you get to see that when you place the candle of a character inside of a person's body, you get to see what that lantern looks like, and. Yeah, and it makes you, as I have just now in front of you, hopefully offending nobody, but <laughs> this, I don't know, I don't know what to do, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's just an interesting human experiment, and theatre is a cool place in which to play with ideas surrounding gender and sex, and I don't know, I think sometimes about, like, the demonization of sex as it exists kind of as, like, the <laughs> what it seems to have become that being of almost, like, the philosophical binary opposite of gender. Um, I don't know, these are just thoughts that I've been having and I've been having them more loudly since seeing this production of Spring Awakening. Um, anyway, I'll stop talking before I... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, say something even stupider, you know? <laughs> um, but, yeah, anyway... Uh, yeah, thanks for listening to this conversation <laughs> between me and you. Um, because, yeah, spring woke up yet again. <laughs> ah, yeah, so uh, anyway, thanks. For, yeah, thank you for being here. It was very, very sweet of you to spend this much time with me. 
Um, yeah, I hope you had an okay time. Uh, I really enjoyed the chance to speak to you. <laughs> um, the Fringe Festival is coming up. I'm only intimately aware of this because, again, I'm doing two shows in it. Uh, yeah, please, please feel free to invite us to them. James and I are both, yeah, involved with shows in the Fringe Festival. So we're trying to work out a way to get to experience of much, like, as much of the festival as we can and support as many people as we can and see as many shows as we can. Uh, we're just working out how that schedule is going to work, um... Yeah, that's all. <laughs> but yeah, please invite us and we'll see what we can get to happen. Uh, yeah, as always, I may already disagree with everything I just said. And friends don't let friends become theatre critics. And again, I, I I hope that you are a style of happy that you have long longed to be. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, thank you again for being here. That's really sweet of you. And hopefully, yeah, I'll get a chance to speak to you again soon. Uh, yeah.